Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And our text this morning will be verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. Now, I could probably spend three or four weeks on this text, but I have limited myself. (laughs) So we will go through verses 4 to 7. I I believe this week. If we get carried away, we might go to next week, but I think we'll get done this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Let us go to to God in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for putting it in human language that we might be able to read it. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we can understand it. And so this morning, again, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of the Word of God to our hearts and apply it to each heart as he sees fit. And again, we pray that your church would be built more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ because we have heard from our God this morning through the word of God. In your name, amen. Well, we are going through the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and often we, as we talked last week, this is a, a text that is ripped from its context and simply, simply applied to the individual. And yet, the overarching theme that is going through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is spiritual gifts, the use of spiritual gifts. In other words, he's now going to talk about the supremacy of love because he understands that our spiritual gifts can only ultimately be effective if they are done with love. And so last week we saw the preeminence of love. We, we looked at the preeminence of love and we saw that it was necessary to have love when we exercise our gifts. Otherwise, we said we found out three things last week. First of all, you accomplish nothing. Everything that you do is useless because it's not done in love, which means it's not done in the power of the Holy Spirit, which means it's just done in the flesh and it produces nothing of spiritual value. Paul went a little bit further and a little bit hurtful, really, because he said, actually, if you don't have love... He said, basically, as you exercise your gifts, you are nothing, zero, zip, not nobody, zero. It's like you don't exist. You're of no value to the church, no value spiritually. Ouch, Paul. And then he says, also, if you exercise your spiritual gifts without love, you will ultimately produce nothing for yourself. There will be no reward, no gain for you personally. There's nothing that's good that's good going to come out of it for you. So you can, you can go to the wall with your gifts and you can be enthusiastic about your gifts and you can think, wow, don't I deserve reward? And God says, nope, 
There's nothing there for you. So after going through all of that, Paul now is going, to, at the end of all of that, you might say, wow, love seems like it's very important. Love is very important. If I don't have love, I can't, and my exercise, my gifts without love, and it's worthless, maybe I ought to know what love is. Maybe I ought to know what love is, because that's a question that should be raising in our mind. Well, what is love? Because if, if it's so important, I need to know what it is so that I can exercise it. And that's really what Paul is doing in this section. He is, he is taking and giving us really the, the, the spectrum of what love is. In fact, we could say that Paul is, is, is shining love through, the, through a prism and he gives us 15 different hues of what love is here as we go through this passage. 15 different variations and different aspects and different parts of love. And so he wants you to know what love looks like. And he wants you to understand what agape love is. Now, what's interesting as we start through this is that in, in your English translations, there tends to be a couple of adjectives here. Be patient. Be kind, it is kind. And it, so it sounds, sounds like it's describing what love is. But the reality is that every single one of these words that is used to describe love in this passage is actually a verb. It's actually a verb. So what's the difference between an adjective and a verb? Well, the adjective is what? Describing some, something about love. The verb is telling you that love is a what? An action. It's not something that we describe as a feeling or some, something like that. It is actually, agape love is actually an action. And so it's not some, simply good enough to feel patient you need to practice patience, all right? It's not good enough to have kind feelings. You need to do kind things. See, we're getting into a pattern here. It's not enough just to have feelings. It results in actions. It's not enough to, to know the truth factually. You have to rejoice in it. And so love is in action primarily here. And so he's not giving us a technical analysis of love as such, but is he's simply breaking it down into an easy way for us to understand and to apply it in our life. And so he, what he's after here is life change. In other words, behavioral change, how you live, he wants to affect because he wants you to understand if I'm going to love, this is what I need to do. This is what it looks like. This is how it actually plays out in real life. And so we can now measure our lives against these characteristics and see how we match up. And as one commentator says, what we can really see if we were going to change the metaphor is Christ sitting for a portrait. And this is what is being painted. You're painting the Lord Jesus Christ because he was the epitome. He demonstrated all of these things as he lived here on earth. He was the perfection of all of these parts 
of love. And so this morning, we will see 15 perfections. Now, that's a lot of them. It's going to be hard to get through them all. But 15 perfections of love so that we might know what love is, so that we might exercise our spiritual gifts in love for pro- and profitability rather than futility. In other words, we're going we're to know what love is so that we exercise our spiritual gifts for profit that will actually be spiritual gain. Long propositional statement. Should have cut it down. But we'll see 15 of these perfections this morning. Now he starts here, and he starts really, and I'm going I'm to put these two together, and he says, there are two positive things that love does. Love is patient and love is kind. Now he starts with the word patience here, and it, it really means to, you, some of your translations might say to forbear. But it refers to someone who patiently, uh, underneath uh, the dis- injuries and, dis- and dis- doesn't respond. In other words, the word here has the idea of being long tempered. And so when people are, 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 are afflicting this person and doing things to this person, he doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't get upset. He's not someone who reacts. He's not someone who blows his top, but he's long-suffering. It's a virtue that God ex- certainly himself modeled for us, Romans 2, 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance, patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, he was, he was patient with you. He didn't react, right? When you were, when you were in rebellion against God and, and against his offer of salvation, he didn't smite you dead. He was what? Patient. He was patient. He didn't respond to the wrong suffering that was given towards him. He was patient, not willing that any should perish, waiting for his elect to come to salvation. So he says, here here is someone who who is willing to take injuries to himself without being revengeful, without getting angry. And he says, this is what you need to be. This is what love is. Love is long-suffering. And so there may be those who are even in the church who are in the exercise of their spiritual gifts or even at home or wherever that is where other believers do things to you. Are you long-suffering? Or do you seek revenge? Do you get, do you get angry? And he says, love is patient. It endures underneath it without retaliating, without getting angry. And then he says, love is kind. Love is kind. The idea here is, is, is that is, is this is the, really the, the, what we would call the active counterpart to patience. Right? When you are patient, you are, you are taking uh, assaults. You are, things are happening to you and you're not responding. But patience, or kindness, I mean, is active goodwill. You are actually active in doing something for someone else. The, word, the root word of this idea has the idea of usefulness, or serving, or gracious. It not only desires 
it, it, it not only desires the welfare of others, but it works for it. So it's not just desiring the welfare of others, it actually works for it. And so there's, a, there's an, a sense in which we are extending mercy and grace to people where we are, we, are, we are now going that extra mile to perform deeds helpful to the one who counts, who even does things against us, right? It's not just for those who are nice to us, but even for those who are what? Our enemies. Matthew 5.40, if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Going that extra mile, being willing to do useful acts for other people in a graciousness, not in anger, not in, in hostility, but in kindness. Well, if we look at the Corinthians, right? Would we would say that they were kind to one another? They were selfish, jealous, spiteful, proud. And as they exercised their spiritual gifts, they were unproductive because they were not kind and gentle to one another. They didn't do what was useful for one another. They were doing what was best for them. And so we are called to be what? Patient. And then we are called to be kind. We take injury. We take hostility without getting angry, without, without getting angry. And then we respond what? In kindness, by doing what's good for them. Now, think about that at home, right? How does that affect our relationships at home when things when things are, aren't done the way we like, do we respond in kindness and usefulness or do we, do we withhold? Put that in the church, right? Do we only use the gift of helps on the people we like? <laughs> the people that are easy? Or are we kind to all of them? And he says, love is kind even what to your enemies? even to those who are hostile towards you. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who what? Persecute you. Notice that. He doesn't just say, have a kind feeling to them. <laughs> he says, do good to them. Ooh, right? Do good. Do good. And so we are called to be those who do good to others. Then he begins a section here of eight negative attributes of love. And maybe we could say in order to know what love is, we need to know what it's not. And he begins this here in this next verse. And he says, love is not jealous. Originally it meant to boil. It's the word that we're, where we get the word zealous. So you can be zealous for something that's good, but here he's using it zealous for oneself, zealous for sin. And so he says there are those who are, who are, are jealous, 
In other words, I want, and jealousy can really be fallen into two categories. And again, maybe we, we're touching on envy here, but the idea is either I, I want what you have or I'm upset because you have something, right? And how, how applicable is that in the church, in the, in the Corinthian church who have already been what? Well, I'm not part of the body, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm an ear instead of an eye, if I'm a, a foot instead of a hand, I don't belong here, poor me, I want, I want to be a hand, I want to be an eye. And he says, love is not what? Jealous. It doesn't, it, it's not upset because it doesn't have something someone else has, and it doesn't, it doesn't despise others because they have something, right? And it's easy for us to say, I want that, or I don't like the person who has that. And he says, love doesn't do that. Love is not jealous. It doesn't have a selfish craving and coveting of other people's gifts like they had in the congregation. Instead, we should be rejoicing in what others have, rejoicing in what God is doing through them. Instead of wanting other people's popularity, and envying what they have. We should be rejoicing with them in their gifting. So he says, love is not jealous. Are we resenting those in the church who have, are gifted different than we are? Are we jealous of those who have things that we wished we had? Are we jealous of people's success? Are we jealous of their success? Do we rejoice when they do well? Do you find yourself when someone's successful going well? I mean, if I was given the leg up like they were, right? Honestly, he did well, but <laughs> the pastor could have been a little bit better. He, he could have made this application, right? Right? Do we find ourselves doing that? What's your response when other people are praised? Are you, are you, is your immediate response joy? Or is your kind of like, <clears throat> right? Appreciate that he sang well, but I did play the piano, right? <laughs> right? So, so what's our, where's our heart? Where's our heart? We're called to rejoice with what other people have and when they are successful rather than being jealous. Then he says, love does not brag, does not parade itself, it's not ostentatious. Any effort to gain the applause of others for outstanding performance comes from this heading, right? Also, wanting to get praise from others, to get people to notice us, Can it be that we would ever exercise our church, our, sp our spiritual gifts in the church for the praise of others? Right? Could it be that we, we actually find ourselves praising ourselves for what's taken place? Do we become boastful? Do we have to tell everybody what we've done? And that can be everything from, you know, um, 
telling, pe making sure people knew that we vacuumed the sanctuary, right? To, to telling people about how successful our Sunday school class is, to expressing how God used us in such great ways, right? And so we can become boastful. We can be, we can be trying to get the attention of others. And so our, our goal in exercising our gifts is ultimately to bring glory to ourselves. Really, we could say bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. <laughs> jealousy puts others down. Bragging brings us up. And so often we find ourselves praising ourselves, patting ourselves on the back. As if somehow the spiritual gifts that God gave us were somehow empowered by our use of them, right? God gave me the spiritual gift, but man, I made the most of it, right? Right? And we start, we start to brag. We start to let others know how we're doing. Again, we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He was willing to humble himself. Although he exists in the form of God, he did not regard equality God a thing to be grasped, but indeed himself taking on the form of a bondservant, right? He didn't boast. The one who had the ability to boast for who he was never boasted. How much more should we not, what, boast? Only the love that comes from Jesus can save us from flaunting our knowledge, our abilities, and our gifts and accomplishment, real or imagined, <laughs> right? So he says, love doesn't brag. Then he says, love isn't arrogant. Love isn't arrogant. Literally means to puff up. Figuratively, it's to describe one who becomes inflated, proud, haughty, or puffed up with pride. This is, this is where bragging comes out of. But the idea with arrogance is, is really an inflated view of yourself, an inflated view of yourself, exaggerated self-concept. Be conceited and proud. And really, you cannot be loving and arrogant. Loving, love and arrogant are two opposite things, right? Love is what? Outward focused for others. Arrogance is what? Inward, self-focused, right? And when you are self-focused, you can't be what? Outward focused. So Paul says to them, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. There's some of you who have been, you've been all the way through this book, they've been fighting, right? I'm Paul, I'm of apostle, of, of Paul, Apollos. They've been fighting over who's got the greatest gifts, trying to exalt themselves. 
And he says, there's some of you here who think you're more than you are. You've mistaken the, God's gifting as somehow making you better than you are. And so Paul says, that's not what love does. Love doesn't say, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. Look how, and become arrogant. Love is, is humble. Love is not puffed up. So he said, don't, don't have this attitude. Don't go around being arrogant. It's not loving. Then he moves on into verse 5. Does not act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. Literally, contrary to schema, form, or fashion, manner of what is proper. The idea is to behave in an ugly, the idea here is to behave in an ugly, indecent, unseemly, or unbecoming manner. To be ill-mannered, rude. Love does none of these things. Unbecoming doesn't care about the feeling or sensitivities of others. The loveless person is careless, overbearing, and often rude. And he says, this is not who you're to be. Love doesn't act this way. Love isn't short with people. Love isn't rude to people. You don't treat people less than. You don't speak to them in derogatory terms. In other words, you treat each other kindly. You treat each other properly. Display good manners at all times. He says, don't act this way. And the Corinthians have been full of this kind of behavior, haven't they? We, we look, at, look at the Lord's Supper. How were they doing there? Were they acting becomingly? No, they were drunk, right? They weren't waiting for one another. They were rude. During worship, right? Here they are. What are they doing? They're trying to outdo one another, speaking in tongues. Everyone wanted to talk at once, tried to be the most dramatic and prominent. Everything was out of order. And so their behavior was unseemly. And Paul says, this isn't what love does. Doesn't act rudely. Doesn't treat each other with disrespect. It treats each other with proper manners. It treats each other well. Probably the result of arrogance, don't you think? Arrogant people tend to be what? Rude. Because after all, you are, you are a, a disturbance to them and a trouble to them. And they think that they look, they look down on you. Then he says, love does not seek its own. Does not seek to lift itself up. does not try to make oneself only look after oneself, after one's own well-being. It doesn't find its highest good. Love doesn't find its highest good in self-fulfillment. 
It isn't enamored with self-worth and self-justification. Vance Havner says the word seeketh in the Greek means to seek. However, it was used to depict a person who was so upset about getting what he, not getting what he wants, he turns to the court system to sue or to demand what he is striving to obtain. Instead of taking no for an answer, this person is so intent on getting his own way that he will search, seek, investigate, never giving up in his pursuit to get what he wants. In fact, he's so bent on getting his way that he will twist the facts, look for loopholes, put words in other people's mouths, try to hold others accountable for promises they never made, leap on administrative mistakes as opportunities to twist someone's arm or seek various other methods to turn situations to his benefit. Wow. Seeks his own. Willing to do whatever is necessary to what? To gain his own way. But that wouldn't happen in the church, would it? Would it? And yet Paul says, this is what love doesn't do. It doesn't manipulate. It doesn't use its gifting in a way for its own, seek its own it won't do whatever it can to, to get its own way. And again, Jesus was our perfect model, wasn't he? The complete opposite. He did not come to be, to be served, but to what? To serve. He didn't come to get something for himself. Son of God gave his life for others. He was the imperfect and Example of incarnational love. He never saw his own welfare, but what? The welfare of others. So love, far from being self-seeking and doing whatever it can to get its own way, is a love that gives for the welfare of others. Then he says, love is not provoked. Now this is more than being irritable. It's, it means not easily provoked to anger by others, especially those close to you. Oops, right? We all are a little bit more patient generally when we get out in public, right? But with those close to us, how do we do? Are we easily provoked? Are we easily angered? Certainly was a, a, a problem in Corinth, right? Easily provoked. We see lawsuits in the church, right? They're upset, demanding their own. And so he says, don't be easily provoked. Don't be easily angered. Don't get angry. And so the question becomes for us, are we those who are easily provoked? This, this can just kill a church, right? Easily provoked, easily angered when we don't get our way, when, when we don't get the attention that we think we can, when we're not able to exercise our spiritual gifts in the way that we feel that they should be. Don't you know that I am a teacher? I am the teacher, and they have me teaching grade three Sunday school. What a waste of my gift, right? 
and how easy it is in church life to be, to be angered with one another and provoked and how destructive it is. As one commentator said, well, you know what? If, if I lose my temper, it's over in a few minutes. But the reality, so is a nuclear bomb, right? So is a nuclear bomb. The devastation is massive. You may be done. But the damage you do, you do is similar to a nuclear bomb. You have left everyone in your wake destroyed. And you, you go home and, or you go away and you feel good because you've got it off your chest and everything is good and your life is back to normal while everyone else is picking up the pieces. And the pieces that are left take much longer to put back together than it did for you to go off. And so he calls us not to be easily provoked, not in our relationships at home, not with our children, not with our wives. Don't be someone who is touchy. Don't be someone who is easily set off. And I will say this, anger is a product of rights that have been taken away. Any rights that you think that you have or anything rights that you think that are due you or any rights that you think have been taken away from you will cause anger. And so if you're going to not be easily provoked, you need to recognize that you're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have no rights you need to repent of the idol of what thing that you expect that you think that you deserve and then your anger will go away and so he says you need you need not to be easily provoked that's not what love is love doesn't spew love doesn't get angry easily And then he says, not only, he says, it does not take into account wrong suffered, suffering. Does not keep in, take into account wrong suffering. We call this scorekeeping, don't we? Scorekeeping. The idea here is that we have a wrong done for us and then we keep note of it. Now, not all of us take out a scratch pad and start writing these things down, but a lot of us take mental notes, right? And when we're wronged, we start to what? Keep track of it, right? We start to keep track, we start to get our list. This is a, a, an accounting term, right? means to take something down in a detailed and logical manner, just like you, an accountant would. He flips through the pages of his letter to, ledger to reveal what's been received and spent. He's able to give an exact account and provide an itemized list, right? That is good practicing in accounting, but in interpersonal relationships, this does not reflect spirit-filled love. 
And we need to be careful that we don't become list takers. Those who start to take track of everything that's been done with us, right? It's like the guy who said, um, when I start fighting with my wife, she gets historical. And the guy's like, you mean hysterical? He goes, no, historical. She starts making a list of everything that I've done in the past, right? And that's not love, right? Love forgives. And by forgiving, we don't mean forgetting, right? What? You can't always forget everything, but you can forgive things, right? And when it's forgiven, that means you choose not to bring it up again. You choose not to bring it to the account of that person. You choose not to bring it back to your mind. You choose not to bring it to anyone else or give it to the offended party. And so forgiveness is a refusal to dwell on those past things. Of course you remember, right? You may in time by God's grace forget them. But many of them you will always remember. Remember on our fifth anniversary? No, right? So you, you will remember that. But you choose not to what? To bring it up. You br to hold it against them. And so he says, love doesn't take an account. He doesn't bring these lists up. Love simply forgives and does not bring to account what has gone on before. And so, think back. Last time you had an argument, a fight, where did you go? History? Or did you stay on task to the, to the thing that's taking place at the time? And he says, we need to do that. And we need to do that as a church because the church is an easy place to find offense. You'll find enough offense at home, but when you get to the church, remember the church is this oddball mixture of people from all walks and races and different places and different backgrounds, right? We all are going to be doing things a little bit different and it's easy to be offended. It's easy to say, well, that happened to me last year. I didn't get a Christmas bag. We don't give out Christmas bags, so just in case any of you, I gave you a new offense, we don't. All right? But it's easy. And yet we are called not to keep a list, but to forgive. And again, we must remind, be reminded of what we have been forgiven of. And if an infinite God remember, does never, in his omniscience, never forgets anything that you have done, yet chooses to forgive you, how much more should we be the same way, right? He takes our sins and he, re he refuses, not that he forgets about them, but he refuses to bring them to our account or hold them against us. So much more should we also do the same. Well, he begins now in verse 13 to go to some positive, I mean, verse we're in chapter 13, verse 6. <laughs> he goes to some positive things about love. What does love rejoice in? He says, first of all, he does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So lo love never takes satisfaction from sin. It never takes satisfaction in sin. It never delights in it. 
not our own sin nor the sin of others. To rejoice in unrighteousness is to justify it. It also makes wrong appear to be right. The Bible warns against that. Woe are those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, Isaiah 5.20. That's turning God's truth upside down. And he says, true love never is satisfied, never rejoices in sin. It never sees it as good. It never is happy when someone else's sin. It never delights in its own sin. Again, how, how does this happen? How, how, we would never rejoice in outward sin, would we? Would we? Oh, of course not. We're the church. We're Bowmanville Baptist Church. We would never do this. Well, how might this actually be done? How about gossip? How about, how about, how about the, the Christian prayer request, right? I just wanted you to pray for this, and then we dump, right? Here is all the bad news, and we're actually delighted in giving the news. Ever done that? Not me, of course, but I know others may have, right? It's easy to do. Where instead of, instead of keeping it, we what? We let it out. Rejoicing in sin is wrong, first of all, because it's an affront to God. How can you rejoice in anything that, you, that, is, that is an affront to God and you are a child of the king and you have been saved from sin and God hates sin and you are to love him? How on earth could you ever love sin? How could you rejoice in it? How, how could we ever rejoice in sin because of the consequences of sin, both to ourselves and to the one who commits that sin? The damage that is done. So he says, do not what? Rejoice in unrighteousness. Don't result in sin. Don't exalt it. Love staunchly stands in opposition to unrighteousness. Love cannot tolerate evil or rejoice in, in it in any way. And that's really what he says here in the next verse. But rejoices in what? In, tr in the next part of the verse. But rejoices in truth. This is what love does. It actually what re rejoices in truth. Now, it might be a strange contrast, rejoicing in righteousness and rejoicing in truth, but the truth he's speaking of here is not simply factual truth, but he's talking about what? God's truth, God's revealed truth. So righteousness is predicated on what? God's truth. It can't, it can't come from anywhere else. So love rejoices in God's truth, never with falsehood or false teaching. Love cannot tolerate wrong doctrine. Love cannot tolerate wrong doctrine. Right? So when we hear these things like, people don't agree with us, but doctrine doesn't matter. It's, it's, it matters that we love them. That's not what Paul describes love as. He doesn't say it's love at all costs. 
actually it describes love as those who love the truth. And it matters what people believe because there is right and wrong. If there was no right and wrong, believe what you want. But there is right and wrong and there's consequences for what? Truth. Truth is what will set you free because it, the truth brings you to salvation. It affects souls. It affects eternal destinies. Truth affects your understanding of who God is. Truth affects how you represent God as you go out from here in, in your behavior. The more that you reflect God's truth in the word of God as you in your life as you go out there, then you give the world what a representation of who God is. So love is consistent with kindness, but it is not consistent with a compromise of the truth. Compromising the truth is not kind. Compromising the truth is not love. We may ultimately mislead others by our failure to stand by the truth. Second John 6 says we are to love according to what? His commandments. That we love is that we walk according to his commandments. I mean, we are to be an example as we follow his commandments. Love, truth, and unrighteousness are inseparable. When, when one is weak, they are all weakened. We cannot compromise the truth. We're told in Second in Second John, if someone doesn't teach the truth about God, we are what? Not to receive him into our homes. Those who come teaching and, and reducing Christ are not to be received. False teachers. So re love rejoices in the truth, never in falseness never in unrighteousness. Wow. Well, that's, what, that's 11. We've got four more to go. Four more to go. I know our head is, is twisting, but we will finish them up. He gives us final four attributes of love here in the form of hyperbola. That is overstatements for the sake of emphasis. Overstatements for the sake of emphasis. And they have to be hyperbola. They have to be exaggerations because then they, otherwise it would compromise what he said before. How can we believe all things when we're called to understand the truth? If we are literally called to believe all things, then that means we have to believe any false teaching, any teaching that comes to us. So he's obviously not going to contradict himself in the same passage. No good writer would do that, let alone one that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And everything written in Scripture is consistent with the mind of God, so we know that he must be speaking in hyperbola here. So he really gives us four things. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endure all things. And I would suggest to you, to some degree, the first and fourth come together, and the second and third hang together as pairs. So he says, first of all, love bears all things. What does that mean? It bears all things. Well, the word here, stego, means to protect. The word can mean to endure or to cover and protect. 
If Paul had in mind the concept of endurance, he meant that love bears all things with many offenses and does not stop loving. But I think he covers that in the last one, endures all things. So I would understand here that he is talking about love covers all things. In other words, love does not expose the sin of others. It does not, it, it does not, it protects others. Protects others from exposure, ridicule, or, or harm. Genuine lo- love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when a sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Lo- love never protects sin, but is anxious to protect the sinner. So just in case, before we go too far, we want to recognize this, this is not saying that we cover sin in the fact that sin is never dealt with, right? When it says love covers a multitude of sins, it's not saying that love covers sin and do- doesn't let it be exposed and doesn't deal with it. It's saying, and again, that, that's, there's an Old Testament reference to David in sacrifice, is that you need to be ready to forgive, and forgiveness covers that sin. But the sin needs to be dealt with in order to be forgiven. And so when he says here, it c- covers all things, or he's not saying that we hide sin as if we don't deal with it. What he's saying is we deal with sin within the circle that it should be. So we protect others from gossip by not gossiping. We protect other people from, from harm. But also when we deal with, when we have someone who is in sin, we don't spread it around. We keep it within the damage of the circle that is necessary. We don't start spouting it from the, from the, from the mountaintops and telling everybody, you know, uh, Eduardo, he stole, and we, we tell everybody in the world. Now, if Eduardo wants to, let him. But the reality is we cover, we cover the sin by not making it, exposing it more than it needs to be. We deal with it in, in the area of the sin that it needs to be and the damage that is done without trying to promote it and make, giving it to everyone. In other words, we don't... Uh, air every dirty laundry that we know right we go from dealing with the sin where we can now turn it into gossip and tell everybody about it and so he says love will protect it will keep people from telling everyone about everyone's sin I mean you would feel pretty bad wouldn't you if you had a little disagreement with someone in the church, right? Fork versus spoon got into a big uh, a dispute over that. And the next thing you know, it's being announced from the pulpit, right? You kind of just want to deal with it. Look, I'm sorry for my attitude, right? Deal with it. It's done. Doesn't The whole congregation doesn't need to know about it. We don't want to create more damage than we had before. We might even create more damage than the original sin by, by spreading it everywhere. And so love has that idea of covering. So love is, has no part in spreading. It does not expose, exploit, gloat, or condemn. It bears it. It does not bear it. 
different bear, right? It carries it, it doesn't expose it. I should have spelt it. it does not B-A-R-E it. B-A-R-E it. Wow, I should not be spelling. All right. <laughs> Next, he says it believes all things. It believes all things. And again, we, we talked about it earlier. Obviously, he's not talking about under, believing everything that's said. It's not believing uh, all false doctrine. But the idea here is not being suspicious or distrustful. Not being suspicious or distrustful. Not, not, not being cynical. All right? So the idea here is, is that we are, willing, we are willing to take people at their word. In other words, we want to, we want to not be sus, always suspecting someone's motives, not, not believing what they say to us. Right? Remember, the disciples came to Christ and said, how many times should we forgive? Right? That's really this idea. Lord, how many times should I forgive? Right? I, I really don't think that maybe that they're, they're sincere in their, in their repentance. I really don't think they really want to get rid of this sin. Right? And so the idea is what? Judging them. Judging that heart and saying, well, I don't know. They say, they say that they, they're, they're sorry, but I don't know if they really are. I don't know if they're really repentant. And so we get, we get into judging motives. Right? Right? Well, they, they say they did that for my good, but I really think that they were doing it for their own good, right? And we can get cynical and we, and we can get suspicious of people. We could really say this is saying love gives the benefit of the doubt. When wronged, when things go badly. Now he's not saying believe in spite of the evidence. Okay, so if your your child comes to you with chocolate on your fa on their face and it's all over their hands and you say to them, "Were you in the chocolate?" and they go, "Nope, never touched it." Right? You don't go, "Oh well, I got to believe them." Right? I don't want to judge their motives right now. Right? So it's not it's not a call for a lack of discernment here. But he's saying when there's doubt, you give what people the benefit of the doubt. When there's no evidence, then we have to what? We agree with that. That goes with forgiveness. That goes with everything, right? We need to be willing to believe. When we do not have the proof, then we what? We believe. This will restore relationships so quickly. Stop being, go where angels fear to dread tread angels fear to tread yeah that's right and judge people's motives as believers love says listen I'm going to trust that when you tell me you did that for my good even though it might have not been disastrous and don't do it again I believe you when you ask for forgiveness I grant it to you when you say I did not take the chocolate and I don't have proof, I say, okay. And so we could almost say this is the, the idea behind our law, presumed innocent till proven guilty. We presume innocence. And then it says, hopes all things. Hopes all things. Again, the idea here is, 
is that when things do go awry and things are proven wrong and people do mess up and we know it, that we don't become frustrated, that we don't become hopeless and we start to say, this is never going to change. This is always the way it's going to be. But rather we say, by God's grace, we know by God's grace that they can change. By God's grace, it's not finished. They're not dead. There's still time for God to work in their life. And I will hope in the future that though they have disappointed me in the past and though they have hurt me in the past and they have lied to me in the past, I will still trust. I will still hope that in the future, God will change them. That I recognize that my hope is not based upon the greatness of humanity, but on the power of the grace of God to change people's hearts and to change them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm optimistic about spiritual growth and the spiritual growth that will come and the spiritual development that will take place in others. And so I don't lose hope. Not because I'm trusting in that individual as such, but because I'm trusting in this power of the grace of God to change them. That is the hope that we have. And then lastly, he says, love endures all things. Endures all things. And this here is again the idea of, of taking and continuing in love. No matter what takes place, no matter how difficult circumstances become, we continue to love. We continue to love. We must persevere in love. We must continue to go on, no matter how things continue to come down the pike, no matter how difficult things become, we continue in love. We don't stop, we don't give up. We continue to endure. And, our, and ultimately, and are we endure because of the hope that we have in the future of Christ's coming and the hope of being changed. And so he says, it endures. It doesn't give up. It doesn't try for a while, then quit. It doesn't give it the old college try. It continues to go. It continues to love. It never stops loving. It endures. It perseveres. That's what love does. In spite of the challenging circumstances, in spite of the challenges that come in life, it continues to love. And so Paul says this morning, this is what love is. Here's the prism of love. This is what you need to do. You need to what? Keep on persevering. Love keeps at it, right? It doesn't think I should love. It continues to do the things that love does. It continues to hope. It continues to hope by, a lot, by always continuing to want others to grow spiritually, knowing that God can change people. It continues to believe. It continues to give people the benefit of the doubt. 
and it bears all things. It simply covers and keeps things from being exposed. And so Paul has given us this prism. All 15 of these things are aspects of things that we must do in our lives. Instead of jealousy, we must what? Exalt others. And he continues all through the negatives and we can just say this, I need to do the opposite of this. Because love, 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 love isn't jealous. Instead of bragging, I need humility. I must put, bring others up rather than myself. I must recognize that I am nothing. I must act not unbecomingly, but becomingly. I must, I must seek others' good rather than my own. I must be patient rather than being provoked. And I must be willing to forgive rather than to hang on. I must rejoice in the truth and hate sin. He says, this is what love does. We must be active in doing these things. And Paul says, when we incorporate these things into our lives, and this becomes how we live, then as we exercise our spiritual gifts within the church, they will be exercised with these perfections of love in, in, in us that now are now being exhibited in our demonstration of our spiritual gifts. And then, then we will be effective in ministry in the church. Then we will be effective in the use of our spiritual gifts. And instead of amounting to zero, instead of having no spiritual usefulness and no reward and nothing gained, we will be what? Useful in the church of Christ. Our status will now be that we are in Jesus Christ and in his body. We will now be producing spiritual fruit, not because we did it, because the Holy Spirit did it through us. And ultimately, God says he will ultimately reward you for what's done in his power. Which is, again, the insanity of God's love for us. That he would reward you for doing things in his power and yet that's the love of God for us and so he says we need to demonstrate that love Christ's love to one another and then ultimately the church will be built to the fullness of the man Christ Jesus because we are demonstrating the love of God from our hearts to others through the power of the Holy Spirit exercising our gifts in the church together let's close in prayer Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this picture of love, this very broad look at all the perfections of love, certainly not all of them, but many of them. We pray that you would help us to look at our own hearts, to see where we are practicing these things and where we're not, where we need to improve. Pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us on those areas that we need to improve. And I pray that you would grant us repentance and the willingness to be obedient. And so I pray that you will build Bowmanville Baptist Church as we display your love, as you work through us, and that you would help us to use our gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that love will be displayed among us, that we might be a light on a hill, and that ultimately the church might grow into the fullness of the stature of the man Christ Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen.